Hello everyone, my name is Julia and I have the joy of reading the Bible for us tonight. Tonight we'll be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 to 18. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to admit, sorry, (laughs) I'm going to skip it. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ. So settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is, this, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I just had the, um, I'm not really going to talk about, let's just go back one slide. I'm not really going to talk about the end, but I just realised why Paul says, I write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. Why do you reckon he said that? Anyone want to guess? Oh yeah, Kang. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So Kang just said, uh, for those people at home, those, that people have imitated Paul, said they've come from Paul and perhaps even have the authority of Paul, and Paul's like, if my handwriting's not at the end, it's not legit. Yeah, cool. I think that's quite cool. Anyway, I'm going to pray, and we'll get stuck into what we're doing tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your word, and we pray now that as we hear it, uh, we would not merely be those... Uh, who are listeners, but we would be doers of your word, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Our friends, wholehearted disciples of Jesus care about the discipleship of others. Uh, They want this to see their brothers and sisters in Christ walking worthily of Jesus. In fact, wholehearted disciples of Jesus not only want to see their brothers and sisters walking worthily of Jesus, but they pray to that end. Indeed, they don't even pray to that end. They actually work to that end as well. They're actually involved in encouraging each other to walk worthily of Jesus. And not just encouraging, but 
wholehearted disciples of Jesus will actually call one another out when they see a brother or a sister stepping outside the lines, outside the bounds of what Jesus calls us to do in life. And just like there is a right way to colour in, and that that's not quite the right way, that's not mine, I promise, but just like there is a right way to colour in, so there is a right way to walk worthily of Jesus. There actually is a right way to do life. And there are, that means there are a million wrong ways. And when a believer strays, what other believers do is call them back. Call them back to follow Jesus. Because wholehearted disciples of Jesus care about how other people are following Jesus. They care about the discipleship of others. But to do so feels un- entirely uncomfortable, doesn't it? At least in part because of the world we live in. Now, it was the great philosophers, the master's apprentices, who in 1971 wrote this. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. Okay, that wasn't as good as 9 o'clock, just so you know. <laughs> the 9 o'clock has nailed that, like, through and through. I know it was written in 1971. You can't imagine 1971. I can't either, just so you know. Uh, but that, that mantra of do what you want to do, be what you want to be, yeah! It's been accepted all over the world. And in the process, we have actually completely confused acceptance and truth and tolerance and freedom and love and criticism. And the world of psychology instructs us to accept others as they are and give them space to find their own path and learn their own truth. And so now we live in a world where where, while there are still some taboos related to the most abhorrent of human behaviour, by and large, to challenge someone in something they're doing or something they think, to call someone out in our world is in a sense immoral. And I think even in the Christian community, we've taken this on like liquid into the chalk and, and we therefore keep to ourselves because we fear the backlash or we fear what other people might say to us. Many of us perhaps have learnt the lesson that Ed Stetzer articulates in his excellent book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. And this is what he says. He says, Outrage has no time for dialogue and it won't be distracted by nuance or even truth. And then he says, People now believe they are so right that the only reason you could ever disagree with someone would be based on moral hatred. So when I say wholehearted disciples care about the discipleship of others and mean we need to help each other walk worthily of Jesus, we need to challenge each other, we need to teach each other, we need to correct each other, we need to rebuke each other, we need to admonish each other, I suspect inwardly we all shudder just a little bit and think surely not me. But friends, I want to say tonight that although it may feel entirely uncomfortable, this is just as essential today as it was when 2 Thessalonians 3 was written. As we come to the end of our little study in this fascinating book, we come face to face with a church that has in it people who are not walking worthily of Jesus. 
And I use that language quite deliberately because that's literally what Paul says when he speaks to the Thessalonians and the Colossians and the Philippians over and over again. He calls the Christian life a walking worthily with Jesus. Uh, come up with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you have your own Bible. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but from verse 11. And this is how Paul describes his ministry. He says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, literally to walk worthily of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, what we saw when we studied 1 Thessalonians last year was that there were problems in the church. And so in chapter 5, uh, from verse uh, 12, Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. That's a part of the job of church leaders. And he says, verse 13, Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. But verse 14 is the uh-oh verse. Right, it says here, And we urge you, brothers and sisters. So this is not just the clergy now, right? This is not the staff team. This is you. Hand up all the brothers and sisters. Excellent. I think everyone's got their hand up. Good job. What does he say? Warn. Warn those who are not walking worthily, who are disorderly, who are disruptive. We, we like encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with one another. That's the easy part. But he actually said to them in 1 Thessalonians, warn these people. And so now when we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this same problem of people who are not walking worthily but are disorderly and disruptive and not living in accord with Jesus, well, it seems the problem's got so big that now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, this is what Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is not walking worthily, walking in a disorderly fashion, walking disruptively, and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. See, there are people in the church who are not colouring in between the lines. They're not walking the narrow road. They're not walking worthily of Jesus. And Paul says, you actually avoid them. Stand apart from them. Now, before you rush into thinking that Paul just must mean these particular people in this particular circumstance, in this particular city, in this particular time, that this teaching is particularly not for you, let me point out that you cannot particularly think that. It's impossible to do that with this passage. In verse 6, Paul is using very general principle-type language. For some strange reason, our translators add in the word here, idle and i think it blurs the reality of what paul is trying to say he's just trying to say here in verse six every believer who walks in a disorderly fashion as opposed to walking worthily then they are the people that he says that you actually stand apart from keep away from we see that it's not just this particular people in this particular time but the second half of verse six he says not just those people at that point in time are about any particular issue but it's who are not living according to the teaching that you received from us, everything that Paul has said. Again, in verse 14, he says the same thing, underlining it. Uh, verse 14, he says, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. These are the people about all manner of things in any way in which someone is not walking worthily of Jesus. So we cannot avoid this reality. That as wholehearted disciples of Jesus, who want to care about the discipleship of others, there are sometimes going to be hard decisions to make 
And in the case of the Thessalonians, it was hard decisions about people who refused to work. And so what we're going to do uh, for the rest of our time together is unpack why Paul is so keen on work, and then secondly, unpack just what he means by keep away from people who are walking in a disorderly fashion. So first of all, let's go to the question of work. Uh, Look with me from verse 7. He writes, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not disorderly when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And we did this not because we do not have the authority or the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, I need to just pause on verse 10 to make sure we actually understand what Paul is saying here. Uh, It's really important pastorally that we think about particularly the word unwilling. See how he says there? The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Paul is not simply saying to every unemployed person, get a job, you lazy sod. But he is saying to people who refuse to get a job, get a job, you lazy sod. But he's not talking to people who are perhaps unable to work. He uses very deliberate language here. It's about people who are unwilling, who can but won't. And I think it's important that we make a distinction between the unwilling and the unable. And so there's lots of reasons that people may be unable to work. It may be that someone has a disability, and in actual fact, they may be quite willing to work, but they're unable to actually work in some way, shape or form because of their disability. It may be that people have an illness or a sickness, a mental health issue or something else, that they they want to work but they can't. Paul's not talking to those people either. Uh, Neither is Paul talking to people who care for people at home or children at home, uh, which of course is all work but just not recognised as valuable by our society and culture often when of course that's probably the most valuable work. But the people Paul is talking to are those who specifically are unwilling to do anything with their life and are just pottering around, loafing off other people's loaves. Now, it may be that these people here in 2 Thessalonians are people who'd thought from chapter 2 that Jesus has already come. It's not clear that that is the connection. But either way, Paul speaks sharply to them in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, We hear that some among you are walking unworthily, They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Now it's worth just sort of pausing for a moment to ponder why it is that Paul is so committed to them working. Why is work so important for Christian people? Well, I think three things that the Bible teaches us about work that you can unpack in a separate 40-minute sermon that we're not going to do tonight. So I'll just put these three things on the table for you to ponder. Number one, we're actually made to work. 
We were created to work. Work is part of the Genesis 2 part of creation, not part of the Genesis 3 part of creation. We actually were designed by God to be involved in work. And to that extent, secondly, work is a gift from God. And so John Stott writes, work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. And then thirdly, the reality of the scriptures is God tells us to work. In the commandments, here, in other places, it's reflected in many places throughout the New Testament that we ought to be people who actually do work. Now for the Christian, therefore, work is not something that we ought to avoid or despise. Uh, But it's something we ought to embrace and serve God through. Uh, But for now, the point is that people who simply refuse on principle, without some inability, people who say they're unwilling to give it a go, well, they ought to be called out and called to actually work, as people should be on any number of different issues. And so that then helps us turn to our second thing tonight and unpack then what it means to keep away from or not associate with those who are disorderly in their walking, not walking worthily of Jesus, but walking in a disorderly, disruptive fashion. What do you do with someone who does refuse to work or or in any other way does not walk worthily of Jesus and ignores the command of God uh, over their life? Well, in, in summary, I think Paul is saying this, that there comes a time when you actually need to distance yourself from people who will not seek to be obedient to the word of God for their benefit in the Lord. And the seriousness of this cannot be underestimated. Look with me from verse 6. Paul writes again, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. And in actual fact, the, the order of the language here is actually more like, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with strong military language, invoking the name of Jesus, he says, keep away from every believer who walks unworthily of Jesus and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. And the language of keep away there is the same language that is used of unfurling and furling sails on a boat. When you have your sail and the wind comes up, you unfurl it so it can catch all the wind and you can cruise along. And when you're done, you literally retract it or or furl it or in the language here, you keep it away. And that's what Paul is saying. There comes a time when you actually need to step back, retract yourself and keep away from others. Uh, He fleshes it out more in verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. It says, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them. But here in verse 14, he links it with a purpose. He says, do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. The goal of these actions is actually restoration. Often the way we use shame in our culture today is to make someone feel really bad and to crush them. But in actual fact, it's different in the scriptures. Properly understood, shame always leads us back to God. So Psalm 83 says, cover their faces, the psalmist writes, cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O Lord. That's the goal. That people might actually realize, wow, I've done the wrong thing and I need to return to Jesus. 
And now, uh, how, how does that actually happen? How does it play out? Well, it's almost like Paul provides a helpful clarification for us in verse 15. Now, look what he says. He says, Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So, so here is the much-needed reminder not to be harsh. This is not a call that you might see someone who does the wrong thing and yell out, Get out! Get away from me! No, he's saying here, where you see someone who's not walking worthily of Jesus, we need to urge them. We need to warn them. We need to encourage them. But perhaps eventually there'll come a moment where you need to distance from them, but only with the purpose that they may be brought back to the throne of grace. And so you'll always do that gently and kindly and carefully. Uh, there's a sense in which Paul is saying no more than he says uh, in Titus chapter 3 or that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once. Then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. Because there comes a time when you actually need to distance yourself from people who will not seek to be obedient to the word of God for their benefit and for the Lord. Again, this is not a command to immediately get up from the table as soon as someone you're having dinner with takes the Lord's name in vain. Remember, Paul's working with this community of people began back in 1 Thessalonians. He's spoken to them. He's warned them. Other people have warned them. They've ignored the warnings. And he says, now, no, now is the time to withdraw. Again, this is no justification for some arrogant person to go around after church tonight and say, you, stop doing this, you, stop doing this, you, stop doing this, you, stop doing this. Neither is it justification for that. But remembering that Paul has been writing to and instructing these people for a long time, really it's just a command to take sin seriously. How might you do that? Well, with all love, because that's the end goal. You want to love people back into the kingdom. With all wisdom and with all grace, you might say to a friend, Hey, I noticed that you did this. And I'm not sure that that's honouring to Jesus. What do you think, Will? And hopefully, Will repents and acknowledges that and returns to the Lord but if they don't, then I'd encourage you to pray for them and to pray that they would recognise that they're walking in a disorderly fashion and need to walk worthily of Jesus. And sometime later, I encourage you to go and say to them again, hey, Will, picking on Will, who's sitting right up in a corner up there. Hey, Will, good to see you. Uh, I know he's a robust character. He's, I love him. Right, <laughs> there's about nine Wills here all going... <laughs> But the second time, you go and say, hey, Will, I just noticed you're just still behaving in this way and I don't think that that's walking worthily of Jesus. What do you think about that? And if a person says, forget it, can't be bothered, then perhaps that's the moment where you actually need to furl the sail, to pull back and say, that's, that's not how we walk with Jesus and actually not associate with that person, that they might come to repentance. 
Now that sounds harsh. And you might be shuddering at the thought. But I actually wonder whether the real reason that we don't have a culture of calling each other out is actually not to do with the relational thing. It's actually more to do with the fact that we don't take our own sin seriously. And therefore we're numbed to the sin of other people. Perhaps there's other reasons too, but let me just ask you this. Are you even calling your own self to account for your sin? We fall into sin often without question. And we continue in sin often without question. And we enjoy sin with joyful abandon. And I know of people who... Hey, they have the consciousness to realize that what they're doing is probably the wrong thing, but then they sort of spend time assuring themselves that, well, God is forgiving and gracious and kind, and I'm sure it'll be all okay in the end. Sin can be gratifying and pleasing to the eye and tasty. It can feel nice and enjoyable. It can look good and provide you with an enjoyable experience. But that doesn't make it right. In fact, to treat sin so lightly, to peer longingly at it and to play with it like some plaything and engage with it without thought and to think, oh, I can just sin in this way and, and no one will know. You, know. you know what that does? It turns the cross of Christ into a divine madness or a sick joke. What, why did God send Jesus to die on a cross if sin doesn't matter? Why did God send his only son to die on a cross allegedly for you if sin doesn't matter? If you can treat it flippantly and lightly, if it's not that bad, if it's something you can do with a clear conscience, is it something that you can dabble with what of the cross? Did God overdo it at the cross? Did God make a blunder at the cross? No. Jesus died for you, taking your sin on his shoulders because it is that bad. And if you need a reminder about the seriousness of sin and how seriously to take it in yourself first... Look at the blood-stained hand of Christ at the cross. He hung there for you because of your sin. Look to the cross where the Son became an object of wrath because of your sin and mine. Oh, that we would take our own sin seriously. And be a resource to each other to do exactly what Paul encourages the Colossians to do. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, Teach and admonish each other with all wisdom. And friends, I'd love you to do that for me. And I hope the person sitting next to you would love you to do that for them. And I pray that you're also ready for the person sitting next to you 
to teach and admonish you. Because wholehearted disciples of Jesus care about the discipleship of others. Because they love others. And they want what is best for them every single time. How about we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your word. And though sometimes your word comes to us as a hard word and something that is difficult to do and grapple with, Lord, we pray you would give us great wisdom. First, Lord, help us to be people who take our own sins seriously. And then second, Lord, help us to be those who do care about the discipleship of others. Where we have people around us who are not walking worthily of Jesus, Lord God, help us to warn them, to call them back home, get them to colour between the lines and walk the narrow road. Lord God, we pray that as we challenge each other that we would receive such challenges as in love. Protect us from the arrogance that may be in our own hearts desiring to challenge others. And first, Lord, help us to challenge ourselves. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Pardon? You mind if we still walk? Yeah, go. Well, we're going to have some question and answer time now, uh, which is great. That was a very challenging sermon. So it's exciting that we get to test Nigel and ask lots of tricky questions about it. On Slido. <laughs> we should have a vote one day, but anyway, that's we'll fine. Actually, we almost did last <laughs> um, So we'll give you a second now to uh, pull it up on the website. That's the code you put in. Um, ask any questions that you have uh, or, yep, just, I was going to ask you while we wait. Go for it. What's, uh, what's one of your favourite memories from doing MTS here? Oh, one of my favourite memories. So one of my favourite memories from MTS, I actually... I uh, spoke about this in our newsletter video this week. Um, if you remember, does anyone still remember Simon Swaddling? Uh, so uh, Simon did MTS here, finished last year. He's currently at Moore College, so we have sent him out to do great things for Jesus. Um, and his grandfather was one of the ministers here when I was doing MTS. His name was Joe Burrows. And uh, Joe uh, critiqued my first sermon I remember that quite clearly uh, because he was full of grace and I thought, oh, this is going along just fine. I must have gone okay for about the first 30 seconds. And then after that, it was sort of like... <laughs> and, uh, and the best piece of advice he gave me, because the first sermon I did was, ever to, was to the Tuesday web ladies. Uh, so it was a whole lot of ladies, sort of 50 and over. And, uh, and he said to me, um, these people are your mother not your children. I thought that was very helpful. You can ask me about that later if you don't understand what that means. But yeah, super helpful. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's get into it. We've got some really great questions. Excellent. Um, the first one, this is thinking about the kind of encouraging people to be self-reliant. Mm. Does generosity to those in need discourage self-reliance? Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting... Uh, there's a whole range of things that people have spoken to me about today that I need to sort of grapple with a little bit. Um, 
uh, around volunteerism and all sorts of things, you know, supporting people. Uh, I, in the other ministry that I have done, um, uh, we started giving money generously to those people in need, um, but we found that the same people would come back again and again and again, and probably they had just become lazy and had actually just worked out how to get money from enough places to survive without doing anything meaningful. And I think sometimes, actually, a better work of generosity is to help someone work out how they can meaningfully use their life and time rather than just keep handing out money. It may well be you need to support someone ongoingly in a financial way until they can actually work out what they might do. But I think uh, the answer to that question is it depends. Yeah, on the circumstance. But I, I would, I, I'm not someone who just hands out money all the time. I much prefer to dig into what's going on with someone uh, before I do that. Yeah. Interesting. It's helpful. Um, this is a great question across two parts. Okay. Very creatively written. Um, do you have any advice for lovingly correcting and rebuking a brother or sister who is fully aware of their sinfulness and has an I won't listen to you tell me about the speck in my eye because of the plank in yours kind of mentality? Mm. Um, so um, uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, I think, where Jesus talks about specks and planks, I think is one of the perhaps most misunderstood parts of the Bible. I don't think Jesus is saying, wait till you're perfect before you challenge someone else. It doesn't make sense of half the other things that he says in Sermon on the Mount and doesn't actually make sense of the end of verse 5 uh, in, in Matthew chapter 7. So I won't unpack all of that. I might unpack some of that in Sermon Extra. Um, but I think, uh, where, I think that is a great illustration. If you've got someone who is like, uh, you're just as bad a sinner as me, don't talk about it, um, then I think that's a perfect illustration of the sort of person who you may end up just sort of saying, well, you know, brother, I, I actually need to distance myself from you because you're not taking sin seriously and I might have some big issues and you might know all my big issues, but I'm trying to grapple with those big issues. If that's the case, if, if we are in communication, Rach, and you're like, you know, back off, get the plank out of your own eye, uh, I might actually say to you, it would be awkward if you're on staff, but uh, I might say to you, uh, Rach, I, I actually just need to say to you that um, I'm not going to spend time with you now uh, as a Christian brother because you need to actually recognise that what you're doing is not walking worthily of Jesus. And, and I brought this before you, and you might think I have problems and I'm working on my problems, let me assure you, 24-7. But it seems to me you're not even acknowledging that there's an issue here. And I just want to lay before you that Jesus expects more of us. That's a really challenging call. I think it helps us think about what you were saying about taking sin seriously. That is taking it really seriously mm. to, to do something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, just, just on that, I think someone's response to a loving, grace-filled challenge uh, will denote where they are with the Lord. If someone really jams back hard at you, then, then that probably tells you a lot about where they are with Jesus. If someone's willing to listen, even if they're sort of shocked by your gentle, loving, grace-filled challenge of something with them, they're willing to listen, that probably says, yeah, they actually do want to honour Jesus. And, um, and they're not, yeah, deliberately heading off on their own path. Helpful clarification. Um, this will be our last question. 
How do you reconcile this command from God to work when, with the call that you've made even tonight to uh, that the most valuable thing to do is ministry? Uh, is not ministry work? Is that a fair answer? <laughs> I think ministry is work. Uh, it's just the highest, most valuable work. Anyone want to arm wrestle on that? Nice. Is that all right? Yeah. Great. I'm happy with that. Excellent. Um, yeah. Is there any kind of final oh, thoughts yeah. you'd like to give us? Yeah, yeah. I do, actually. I have, <laughs> I have a final thought. Uh, one of the things that we want to do uh, with our question time is make sure um, that uh, um, we come back to uh, the point of the passage and come back to a little... Just remind ourselves what um, God has taught us um, today. I'd love you to open up Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Thanks. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, um, Adam and Eve uh, have had children, uh, Cain and Abel. And uh, from verse 2 we read, Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil, and in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils an offering to the Lord, verse 4. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked, on favor, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. You might think that's a little unfair, but you can see the language there. Cain brings uh, some of the fruit of the soil, whereas Abel brings the best bit, because we all know the fat is the best bit, right? So, so here we are, and then Cain, uh, verse 5, is very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I love that little passage there because it just describes life. And sin is always crouching at your door. The opportunity to sin is in the 300 gram piece of plastic and metal and glass in your pocket or that you're now holding. The opportunity to sin comes upon you the moment you wake up in a day. It is always crouching at the door. Friends, let us be people who take sin seriously. Let us be people who say, no, I'm not going to walk in a disorderly, disruptive fashion. I'm going to be a believer who seeks to walk worthily of Jesus. And I'm going to do that with the help of my friends and fellow believers and the 400 people in my growth group. And we are, just, we are going to have an excellent time together. <laughs> It's almost 400, right? But, but we're going to have an excellent time together pushing one another on to walk worthily of Jesus. And when I see sin crouching at the door, I'm going to say, get out, close the door. Because what we actually want for ourselves and for each other is to have Jesus at the center. So take sin in your own life seriously and allow that motivation to allow you as a wholehearted disciple of Jesus to care and to love other disciples as they seek to do the same. Amen.